Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Joe Minard, professor of English. And could you say all of your job titles? I, I got a bit confused when I was looking at them all. Yeah, sure. So I'm a professor in the Faculty of Global Liberal Arts at Kandy University of International Studies, but I'm also the director of the Self-Access Learning Centre and the director of the Research Institute for Learner Autonomy Education. I know that's a bit of a mouthful. And if I'm talking to students, I'm a learning advisor. <laughs> well, how, how does the second one connect to the first? Is that your lab? Um, the, the, the first one is my professor title. I think in order to be part of the faculty... I have to be um, in one of the departments, one of the faculties. So um, I happen to be in the Faculty of Global Liberal Arts. So I do teach a couple of classes in that faculty. But my main job is um, independent, really, because the Self-Access Learning Centre serves the whole of the university, not just uh, the faculty of GLA. Yeah, so I'm kind of um, in my role as SALC director. It's kind of independent and the Research Institute, is that your lab? Oh, right. Yes. Sorry. The Research Institute is, um, yeah, we established it in 2017. And it was, a, it is, I suppose, it, it would be seen as a lab, I suppose, in research terms. But we, we've always done research in the SALC, as we call it, the Self-Access Learning Center. But we wanted to, um, I suppose, broaden our scope of research and be part of a, a kind of a global community of researchers. And mm. so establishing a separate research institute seemed to make a lot of sense. So we emphasize, but they, we work close. I'm director of both, um, just coincidentally, uh, but probably in the future, perhaps Relay, the research institute and the SALC may have uh, different heads at some point. But at the moment, I, I head up both of them. Wow. You sound very busy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and somehow you had time to put together this book that we're going to be speaking about today. And the title of the book is Autonomy Support Beyond the Language Learning Classroom, a Self-Determination Theory Perspective. And this is published under the umbrella of the Psychology of Language Learning and Teaching series, of course, edited by Stephen Ryan and Sarah Mercer, your colleagues. And uh, I was doing some research, and I think this is the 16th book in the series. And, and I think you said that this is your second book in the series? Yes, I've got another book in this series that I wrote, uh, came out in 2020, and it was me with six um, co-authors, my other colleagues. So yeah, so we had such a good experience working with Stephen and Sarah and Multilingual Matters. and it. So this new one just seemed like a good fit. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy to be working with them again for this book. All right, so before we get into the book, uh, as we like to do on the podcast, we like to learn about everyone's background. So I was wondering if you could, I don't know how far back you want to start. You've had a really illustrious career. And even when you, when, when someone might read your bio on LinkedIn or ResearchGate or Academia, there's, sounds like there's so many stories. I, I don't know how far, I guess the question is for me, because I changed careers, you know, I started mm. off in music mm. and then I just totally switched at one point. Mm. And uh, but my whole goal from a child to like age 26 was to be a professional musician oh. and then it switched. Yeah. And then now I'm sort of an early career researcher in my 40s. Mm. And it's cool. It's, it's not I never would have if, if I would have talked to my 10 year old self, mm. I, I would have never believed it, it doesn't make any mm. sense. So I guess what I what I like to know is like, wh where did the story begin? Uh, I mean, did you know you were interested in languages 
and then you started down that path in undergraduate or other people have a story where they entered the undergraduate, they were studying something and then they changed fields. So it dep- I don't know how far back you want to go. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I'm quite happy to talk about that. Um, so I, you know, I didn't have a, I, I didn't grow up in an academic um, family or anything like that. So when I was at school, I just thought, oh, I need to get a job, you know, and what's the most practical thing I can learn? I was always interested in psychology hmm. and I was interested in languages, but I never thought of these as careers, you know, like um, uh, my f- the first um, language other than English that I started learning was Welsh because I'm from Wales. Mm. So everyone learns Welsh from an early age. And, and then in high school, I learned Welsh and French and German. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> so they do them all at once. So, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I never thought that would be my career, but I always wanted to travel. So that's sort of what motivated me later, um, you know, to live abroad and then um, go into academia, but maybe I'll back up a bit. So yeah, I didn't necessarily have a particularly academic upbringing um i uh, my undergrad was in business and finance you know because it seemed like a practical thing that you do to get a job and it worked of course <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so i was working in retail management there was these kind of uh, management training programs offered um you know back when i uh, graduated and so i did that for a couple of years but i really hated it but the part i did like was just working with people and supporting people and um you know, find uh, sort of understanding what motivated them, I suppose, looking mm. back, you know, how I could in this sort of management role, which I kind of didn't like, but how could I use this at least um, to support the people that I worked with? And so I, I, um, I suppose I was mainly working with human resource management, as it's called now. Mm. And I, my philosophy for that, I guess, developed when I was working in retail, um, yeah, the, the philosophy of the retailer I was working with was you kind of merchandise people like you merchandise a product. And oh. I hated the thought of that. For me, I wanted to support them and, you know, help people to reach potential and these kinds of things that we now know from psychology is really important, um, you know, to support people. You know, there are things you can do to create conditions where people can thrive. I now know. And I guess I was interested in that without realizing the theory behind it at the time. Mm. But I always wanted to travel. So working in retail in London was, 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 you know, kind of dreary, actually. <laughs> it was pretty hard. Mm. Um, and so I, what did I do? After, so I, um, I did a TEFL certificate. Um, while while was, you were still. While I was working in London. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just moved to Spain. Not on a whim. I sort of planned it, but I didn't have a job to go to or anything. Oh. So just moved to Spain. <laughs> and, um. <laughs> Uh, got a job in a, uh, a language school, yeah, and stayed there for three years. Mm-hmm. Really loved loved Spain. Enjoyed learning Spanish, and uh, you know, Spain was fantastic. And I, but I knew if I was going to make a career of this TEFL thing, I needed to get a master's. Mm. So um, that's yeah, that's when I moved to Dublin to do oh. full time masters. It was an MPhil in applied linguistics at Trinity College Dublin. Wow. <laughs> and that's, I think, where everything changed for me. You know, as soon as I started reading, yeah, DC and Ryan. I remember reading DC and Ryan, and it just blew my mind. You know, reading their text, the original text about motivation. How far back? Because I know you were in, in the book that we're talking about today. I know there was a lot of citations from 2017, but mm. they, they go back a, a ways, don't they? Yeah, Is yeah. it from the 80s? Yeah. So I was reading their original 1985 study. 
mm. you know, when you look at why rewards don't work, basically. Mm. So, you know, if you reward behavior that was, yeah, if you reward behavior and then you later um, remove that reward, you know, people don't tend to continue with that behavior. Um, so motivation needs to be driven from within. And so that I started, first started reading about that when I was doing my MPhil in Dublin. Uh, and then I got so also why did you why did you choose MPhil? Um, well, they're just called different things in different universities. I needed okay. a master's, and in in Dublin, uh, that program happens to be an MPhil. Was it was it centered in linguistics or education yep, was, or? Yeah, applied linguistics. Okay. Yeah. Did you say that? Sorry, I might have missed that. Uh, okay. I, I apologize. <laughs> I was just thinking, God, I want to go to Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really great. Just um, those the libraries. Yeah, I'd never because when I I'd studied business and finance, I didn't really look at those kinds of texts. I was looking, you know, I was looking at. Well, I mean, I was interested in the um, some of the business information uh, literature and uh, you know business organization and that kind of thing, which mm. I suppose and human resource literature. A lot of that was based on psychology, and I'm still mm. kind of interested in that these days as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you were different. kind of a, ahead of the <laughs> yeah. curve because don't most companies aren't they really reading the same stuff now? Yeah, as far so as now, motivating yeah. employees. Definitely. So now I, I subscribe to Harvard, Harvard Business Review. So I love reading those articles, not because I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm in the business world anymore, but um, just because it, it's about how to help people to thrive and grow and get the boat, get the best out of out of your staff and that kind of thing. So it's the psychology of it that I am attracted to. From, so, yeah. So from, look, my business degree isn't really that far away. Yeah, from, way, yeah. from your perspective, when did that kind of shift? Because I remember seeing things you know on news where oh this company's taking all of their executives on a retreat mm. or and then you know nowadays you know with silicon valley right yeah. where you have the napping pods and <laughs> and yeah. maybe taken to the extreme did when did you see that because you were you were kind of in a space in a space like you just described where you know you thought this was important and interesting and the company's mm -hmm. telling you something else mm -hmm. and then as the world progresses, you see it sh shift. Like when did you start to see it shift? I don't know because I, you know, after moving to Spain, I didn't really work in the business world mm -hmm. after that. So it's only kind of through my recent reading of, you know, that I noticed, but I don't, I don't know, honestly. I mean, but did, like on a periphery, did you start seeing it in the news or in, in culture that there was a shift between, like you said, automating uh, humans or automating employees? Yeah. Yeah, maybe um, it probably, when did Daniel Pink's book come out? That actually changed a lot. And he did, you know, a TED talk and that kind of thing when basically he was talking about motivation. And I actually don't, I can't, I have a book here somewhere, but I'd have to remind myself what he says. But um, some of these, so they would have been in the 2000s, it became popular to talk about motivation in the context of business. Do you think if you had an advisor you know, it, it, let's say that, you know, you're, you grew up in this generation, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had that same retail job and you had mm -hmm. an advisor who was sort of pushing you these directions with, you know, the same kind of st stuff you're, you're reading now. Do you think you would have stayed in retail if you had that thread mm -hmm. within a different industry? I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. But now I'm an academic. I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, I just love reading, writing, thinking, and I don't think you, you've got time to do that when you're on a retail floor and the mm. customs are coming in. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah. So you're mm. in Ireland and you're in these libraries reading about 
motivation. Mm. And then, so did you have an advisor who was, because a lot of times people, when they're doing their masters, they say, okay, well, this is the end of the road or, oh, maybe I want to keep going. Did you kind of have that, have that thought or conversation? Oh, I knew I wanted to do this forever. It was fantastic. So um, I was reading about, yeah, motivation, of course, and learner autonomy, because one of the reasons I chose Dublin is because it has a, you know, a strength. It's one of its strengths is, is um, learner autonomy, which, of course, is highly connected uh, with motivation. So my supervisor was David Singleton. And just working with him and um, other students and teachers on the course, you know, David Little was the head of department at the time. So, yeah, being in that environment um, was just such a privilege. But I had to, you know, get a job after that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, no, I knew I, I, I think I knew then that I wanted to go on and do a doctorate. And I assumed I would go back to Dublin to do it because it wasn't that easy to do a distance um, doctorate at the time. You know, it wasn't something people just people did full-time um, right. PhDs in those days, you know, and you have to be at the university. And I just could never imagine myself being able to afford that, to do that. But it was always on my mind. And if I'd had the budget, I would have stayed and continued on to a PhD. So where, where did you go after the MPhil? Um, so I went to um, the United Arab Emirates. So Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, I was looking for jobs, whatever, you know, anywhere. Okay. <laughs> just just all, more or less finished my master's. I just had to... Um, submit you know submit it and get the final grades and everything so more or less done um needed money mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so originally i got a job in a high school in abu dhabi for a year wow yeah which was really yeah really interesting really interesting i mean i taught kids before in spain but not in a high school setting and not in that kind of interesting environment the uae so i worked in a girls school wow uh, grade eight um, English language and literature, and I taught so I taught um, social studies as well, which I don't really have a background in. They just make you do whatever. <laughs> so I just did that for a year, <clears throat> um, basically to yeah try and pay off the student loan and get some experience and travel and do. And it was great. I don't regret it. Uh, it's really great. I knew I didn't want to work in a high school, but I really enjoyed the experience of living in Abu Dhabi and just doing something different. And then while I was there. Uh, a new university um, was being established, Zayed University, and it opened in 1998. And I was there the year before, so I was able to interview for a job in the um, English program. Mm. Hmm. So I had my master's by then, of course, and um, yeah, so I, I got a job as the, one of the founding faculty members for the um, English program. So that was great. So I got a chance to you know, develop the curriculum and all, you know, learn from really senior colleagues as well. So, is that the first time you'd set up a self-access learning center? Right. Well, I didn't. First of all, I was just, you know, an English teacher, basically mm -hmm. developing the um, the required courses for students. And then they'd go on to major in arts and sciences and things. Um, but after I think I was there for three years, the university decided to open a self-access center. And um, I applied to be the coordinator and I got the job. I, I actually did have a little bit of experience before that because I worked in... Um, I had a part-time job at Trinity College in Dublin working mm. in the self-access center. So I knew what one was and I, you know, I had a background in learner autonomy. And um, so I thought I might like to start it uh, at Zayed University. And when did you decide to get your PhD? 
Uh, so I think I, yeah, after a year of being in Abu Dhabi, you know, with a, a good Middle East salary and lots of time, you know, long holidays and that kind of thing, it seemed like a good idea. And TESOL Arabia um, is at their annual conference. And I was there, I must have been in 90. 1998, the first, yeah, the first year at Zayed University. And there was a stall there um, at the book fair for the University of Exeter. And so I met Marion Williams and um, some other faculty members from Exeter. And they were starting an EDD, Doctor of Education, um, in teaching English as a foreign language. And I hadn't, you know, I still at the back of my mind, I thought I might go back to Dublin and do my PhD one day. But mm. I noticed then that uh, if, if I joined Exeter, they would have a campus in Dubai. Um, oh. And then I could go back to Exeter in the summer. We have really long holidays. Um, and so I did that. So, yeah, I, I was probably the first person to sign up. <laughs> but I, I didn't join. I mean, it was a new program, so I wanted to be sure. And I'd never really heard of an EDD before. Mm -hmm. It was quite new back in 1998. Uh, so I wrote to David Singleton, who'd been my um, advisor at uh, Dublin, and, um, you know, he was basically very enthusiastic and um, told me Exeter has an excellent reputation and uh, it's still a doctorate and maybe more appropriate for a field like teaching English as a foreign language. It's more of a professional doctorate. Mm. So I would actually, rather than just doing a, a thesis on a, you know, an obscure area of research or whatever, mm -hmm. um, I would actually be applying my knowledge to the field and benefiting students and the field. So it just seemed to make a lot of sense to do an EDD as I was, you know, a practitioner, mainly a teacher, uh, rather than just a researcher. I like the I like the thought I could do both. How long did it take to finish? So I think it must have taken me five, four or five years. Yeah, four or five years. And, it was and you were basically based like in, it was like a full time. And you were based um, in Abu Dhabi, but, but I happened to be working as well. If that makes sense. You were sorry. You were based in Abu Dhabi at the time. And you were going back on... So, yeah, so it was in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, there was a campus in Dubai. So okay. I would go to uh, the you know, seminars at weekends when the faculty members came over, um, submit my assignments online. And, and then in the summer, I'd go and spend a month or so in Exeter. Wow. To use the library and, you know, maybe take a class or just see my advisors. What was your experience living in the Middle East? Yeah, it was, it was strange. <laughs> it was good, yeah. It was, you know, lots of opportunities because it was such a new university and um, the students were all uh, women who, you know, they, they were first generation in their family to go to university. So it was wow. really special for them. And it was a real privilege for me to work with students like that. You know, they mm. were they were breaking new ground um, and really nice, just really nice, lovely students. And so I'm working in a self-access centre with them. It was really great as well. I, I, yeah, I really enjoy working with students outside the classroom. For people that don't know, can you give the definition of a self-access learning center? Yeah, um, it's funny. I've been writing this this morning, but <laughs> but basically, it's um, usually it's a space. It's usually a physical space, but it can be online. Um, that uh, supports learners um, in developing their own language learning. Uh, way of learning languages basically so it supports them so it offers things like materials advising services um, spaces uh, access to communities so different ways the students can understand themselves um, mm. and take charge of their own learning so we don't teach classes but we help students figure out how they're going to learn 
what their best way is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I really, I really like the idea. I just, I'm thinking about the school that I'm at now and you know, it's first, the first two years are compulsory English mm. and I just get the impression that right off the bat that demotivates students. Mm. And I wonder if we set up a space like that, how many people would actually come. And mm. I, and it's, and I, I was reading the chapter in the book that we're going to talk about today. And I know that you kind of mentioned that you try to advertise at the, at the university you're at now, you know, you really try mm. to get the word out to people and really make it an open environment where, you know, people don't feel nervous about coming in mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. But I just, I wonder if that limits other universities from doing the same thing where they say, Oh, you know, do we really want to spend the money to set up this space? You know, mm -hmm. can't we just set up a little office in the library for people to go to? Is it, does it take a bit of effort to get a university to commit to this kind of a program? It does. Yeah. And I've, I've been on kind of, committees where for other universities where they've been trying to persuade their you know their administration but um so yeah i've seen this in a few different places different countries what tends to happen is that a group of you know really keen teachers or and students often realize there's something they there's something missing An opportunity to use the language for instance or opportunity to work with others or to take some ownership and leadership um, and they usually take over like a little corner or, um, a, you know, a, a unused a classroom is not being used or, you know, a little space in the university that no one will miss. So that tends to happen. And then it gathers momentum and students start going um, and some, you know, teachers maybe get a little bit of budget to buy some materials or offer some events. And this grows. And, and then the administration take notice. They realize, ah, this is something students want to do. But most sadly, mostly they take notice because they think, oh, this could be a money earner. <laughs> this could be a selling point if we have a building dedicated to this. This, mm -hmm. this is something we can put in our brochures. <laughs> but you said you were you had experience with this even back at, in Dublin? Yeah, yeah. Well, in Europe, pretty much. If, you, if there's any language program, there's mm -hmm. a self-access center or some kind of facility that has usually, at the very least, it's a library of resources, language resources. Um, yeah, so in Dublin, yeah, we had two rooms, um, lots of language resources. We didn't have anyone who was officially a learning advisor. So I would mm -hmm. say having dedicated staff there is also important. Um, but because I, you know, myself and my other colleagues, we were all students of applied linguistics and we were interested in learner autonomy and supporting students. So we ended up being kind of de facto learning advisors, helping I students, see. you know, figure out what they needed and help them find the resources that they needed and make a plan, uh, evaluate themselves, take action. So they're not just passively attending language classes. They're finding ways that are meaningful for them to learn the language. And the self-access center provides a kind of space for that. I see. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So, all right, you, you now you're in Abu Dhabi and mm -hmm. you're finishing up your PhD. And so how did you end up coming to Japan or did, were there some spots along the way before you came to Japan? Uh, well, between, um, the UAE and Japan, I took a year off or it ended up being about nine, eight or nine months, um, just to go traveling. Nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Just it seems appropriate. I wanted to finish the doctorate, get that in, um, and then take some time off. And then, uh, actually, when I was on the road, I was in Argentina applying for jobs and <laughs> had interviews and things like that. 
And yeah, actually, the president of one university in Nagoya came to um, Buenos Aires to interview me. Oh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I got the job, and um, uh, then you know, following April, went off to uh, Nagoya to work for three years. <laughs> why did why did the wait? <laughs> why did the president come to Argentina to interview oh, you? Honestly, I think he just wanted the trip. <laughs> he wanted to travel. Okay. <laughs> but um, he'd been in Trinity College, and he'd been, you know, he was impressed with Trinity College, and he liked to, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I guess he wanted to some faculty members that were uh, connected with different countries. And so having that island connection, I guess, and the, um, yeah. So anyway, he <laughs> interviewed me in a hotel lobby in Buenos Aires. And then, yeah, I think it was just the Dublin connection and the fact, the opportunity to travel to Argentina for him. Wow. All right. So then um, had you ever been to Japan before? That was your first experience? No, never been to Japan before. So yeah, that was yeah quite interesting, being in a classroom in the Goya. And, yeah, I mean, what about the? Were you struck by? I mean, to go from the Middle East to Japan. Mm. I mean, talk about two extreme different cultures, right? I mean, was it was oh, that no. kind of strange for you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I suppose I taught Japanese students in Dublin. You know, I taught uh -huh. to lots of different students in Dublin, but it's not the same, is it? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was quite different. Um, and Spain, again, was really different, you know. Um, yeah, but I like, you know, it's an opportunity. I feel like it's good to, yeah, just to ship, put yourself out of your comfort zone every now and then and just to, you know, let's see, I'm trained in this. I'm sure I can cope, you know, mm -hmm. but it takes a while to get used to a new context of course it does but you connect connect with the people and find out what it is they're interested in and how they can how you can help them to figure out what that is and help to motivate themselves so i mean yeah when did you uh so now you're at, at uh kanda right and now i am yes in chiba and yeah. when did you make that transition yeah well I, I was quite happy in nagoya actually the students are really nice you know they weren't the most academic but i felt like i could connect with them Mm -hmm. And yeah, I had a meaningful experience in Nagoya for three years. I would have been, I would have stayed. I, I expect, um, I would have probably got tenure there if I'd been interested. Um, and then I went to a JALT conference and met Lucy Cooker, and everything changed. <laughs> Who's that? I'm not familiar with. <laughs> okay, her. so Lucy Cooker established the Self Access Center where I'm working now. Okay. And uh, there was a JALT. I've forgotten which, forgotten which one it was now, but. Um, uh, I went along to a forum on self-access because I'd worked in self-access in the Middle East for many years. And mm -hmm. I was a little bit uh, out of the loop, I suppose. I'd just I'd become a classroom teacher again. And I was just curious, you know, what was going on in uh, Japan. And so I heard, I think it must have been one of these 90-minute forums because there were several presentations. And I met Gerald Murray and yeah, Lucy Cooker and a few others. Um, and uh, yeah, Alice Lee. And, and so a few different... Um, people working in, in promoting learner autonomy inside and outside the classroom in Japan. Mm. And I was, you know, I hit it off with Lucy. She was great. And we compared stories and uh, we found out we had so many things. We'd all, we'd read the same kind of literature when we were establishing self-access centers. And, and we were on the same wavelength, like her philosophy for self-access matched mine almost exactly. And little things that she'd done, like, um, 
well, not little things, actually, they turn out to be quite significant, but <laughs> little mm-hmm. details. For example, you know, the the um, the coding system when you're coding materials in a, a self-access centre to help students find the level. You know, mm. we chose the same colours or the colours of the sofas in the conversation lounge were the same, you know, as ones we had in Abu Dhabi. So there's always mm. kind of parallels and the, the philosophy was the main thing that matched. So that was really nice. And, you know, off I went back to class in Nagoya. And then a few months later, um, I got this note from Lucy saying, you might want to apply for this. In fact, I hope you will apply for this job. And it was um, the director of the Self-Access Learning Centre. And, uh, yeah, I had to think about it, whether I wanted to apply, you know, because, uh, yeah, I was doing okay in Nagoya. I think when you're a classroom teacher, it's, um, it's a lot, you know, life's, life's quite straightforward, really. You plan your classes, you teach, you do your marking, you know, you do an exam, and that's it. And then you do the same thing every, every week, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when, when you run a self-access centre, there are a million things to think about all the time. Mm. You know, students, you know, finding a way to attract students, to keep students, to make sure that you're meeting their needs, to, you know, connect with teachers, to do the promotion internally, Um, just all these different things all the time. And I didn't know whether I wanted to do that again, you know. Mm. Yeah, to be always on kind of thing. Um, So I gave it some thought and then I decided to apply. And that that was when? Um, Let's see. That would have been 2007, I guess. And I started in 2008, I think that's right. And so you've been the director since then? Yeah, yeah. So I had to think about that. It was actually a dual job at the time as well. It was director of the SALC and assistant director of the ELI, the English Language Institute. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted this kind of management job, really. You know, I enjoyed working with students. Um, Didn't necessarily want to be in a leadership position in that so way. What's the ELI? ELI. So English Language Institute. So it, um, basically, we now we work alongside the ELI. Um, so it's uh, it, um, there are about sixty-five full-time English language teachers working in the ELI, mm-hmm. and they teach all of the first and second year required courses. Okay. And a, and a few of the um, electives as well. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, I was assistant director there, and I, I did that for a few years. But I found that, you know, it's a huge department, obviously. That took a lot more energy than the SALC. I never had enough um, left over to, you know, push the SALC where it could go, like, to reach its potential. So if, it must have been about 2015, I guess. Um, the SALC team made a proposal to the university that we separate the two institutes out so the ELI could focus on the English language classes and the SALC could focus on promoting autonomy for the whole university in all of the courses and to develop communities. Um, oh, and, so the SALC yeah. isn't just for language learning? It's for the for any department? Well, we only teach... Well, yeah, <laughs> but they all, they all... Everyone learns languages at KUIS, so, um, yeah, it's basically... Oh, I see, okay. Yeah. Hmm. I see, okay, and so then I guess they, they hired someone to be that... Mm-hmm. assistant director of the ELI and, and freed you up to be the, the lead director of the SALC. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So I still, you know, I still work closely with the ELI director. Um, that's fine. You know, we, um, yeah, but it, it means that we can focus on our mission. It means we could develop a mission before that. We didn't really have one. It was just part of the ELI. And I just felt like it had much more potential. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So, 
Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah. I, and because I, you know, Neil Curry has been on the the podcast before, and I've done some reading with um, the journal. That what's the what's the name of the journal at, at Canda that you're the editor of? Oh yeah, we've got two. One is the uh, Studies in Self Access Learning Journal that we established in 2010. Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's quarterly peer reviewed journal. And then in 2017, we started Relay Journal. Um, which is which is published tw- yeah, twice a year, and um, is an open. They're both open access, but that one's a kind of um, open peer review. So, so when, yeah, when no I read artic- yeah. <clears throat> when I read articles from there, uh, I thank you for clearing that up. I I would get confused because <laughs> I just didn't know what a language learning advisor was. I didn't mm. know if that was code for teacher at that school. Ah, okay. No, no, we have a different role. Well, that was part of the issue, you see, because learning advisors and teachers were all part of the ELI. And um, yeah, it just felt like there was there was too much of a difference. Um, and people were wondering, you know, can we, yeah, what, how should we define the role when we're all part of the ELI? So by separating out the SELC and the ELI, we could define the role of the advisor much more clearly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's somebody who works with one, one-to-one with students to focus on their personally meaningful goals. So you don't, you're not, not necessarily connected to the curriculum. So That's do what, they, can you walk me through a typical day of a language learning advisor? Yeah. So it's, it's different every day. So um, I have an online appointment system. So students will reserve me for 30 minute advising sessions. Okay. And, uh, and so they could be students I've worked with, you know, since their freshman year or something. Or it could be just a random student or you know, somebody who doesn't know me. or And the appointments can be about anything. I mean, usually it's they're struggling with something or they want to give me. F- so if it's a student um, who's struggling, it might be, you know, I don't feel like I'm progressing in English or I'm lacking confidence or my motivation. I can't get my motivation um, or um, or even like I've got to prepare for this test occasionally or mm. um I want to study abroad, but I'm not sure where to start. It is all sorts of things. Yeah, often it's uh, psychology-related things. You know, often it is comes down to motivation and confidence. All the students in the class are better than me. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so you never know what you're going to get. And so our job really is to listen very carefully and to help not only try to understand the student, but help them understand themselves. And so we use intentional discursive strategies for this to happen. So, you know, we, we, we use, you know, um, uh, of course, we ask questions, but not as much as you'd think. Mostly it's listening, repeating, restating, um, silence, you know, all these kind of strategies help the student to think and express themselves and then help them from there figure out what they want to do and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and how they're going to make themselves accountable and these kinds of things. So you have the appointments. Uh, I guess there's a limit per day. Of, uh, yeah, of, and so then you usually, spend time in the in the in the SALC as well. Yeah, or how does that's it, work? it. So we're in the SALC, and so we do casual advising with students in the SALC. Mm-hmm. So when we see somebody working on something, we'll have a you know what you're doing today, and you know just you basically have advising sessions. How many people? How many students would you say are kind of hanging out daily in the shared oh, we have area? About, yeah, we have about a thousand students coming through a day. What? Yeah, I know it's huge. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen the center. <laughs> no, I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just sort of like a little area where like you could like get a couple call. It's th- you have a thousand people coming into this yeah, area. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the original South, that I t- 
um, took over. There were about 500 to 600 a day. Oh and then when we gosh. moved to the new space, it's that. But I'd say not everybody's working on a, you know, autonomous language learning. Some are there to do their homework and, you know, just meet friends or whatever. Is it just so, kind of a cool place to hang out? Yeah, yeah. So while we're there, we capitalize on this opportunity to help them to think about what they're doing and, you know, perhaps um, make a plan or push themselves or, you know, just reflect on what they're doing um, in and order then, to be a more effective learner. How does how does the research play into this, right? Because I, I know I listened to the Neil interview, um, Neil Curry, and he was talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. So you have these students coming to see you at some point you need to inform them that there's what research studies going on and would they be willing to participate? Mm. Like, is that, yeah. is that sometimes sort of an awkward discussion to have with someone like, Oh, I understand you're having yeah. this problem. Would you like to participate in a research study no, about no. it? Mostly <laughs> we don't research this. This is separate. Yeah. Okay. So How does just that... for a regular, okay. so we, we don't research everyday work, but then we do have projects where we invite students to participate. Yeah, okay. Basically. That's a great yeah. answer. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's very that's very clear. Yeah. Okay, so we, well, so I don't know if Neil talked about the curriculum that we have because he's in charge of that. Um, so we have these self-directed learning courses where students set a goal and you know meet with a learning advisor and we give them weekly written feedback on their progress as well. Not linguistic progress, uh, linguistic progress particularly, but we help them think deeply about what they're doing. So the writing we we so the written part for us is. Um, you ask them questions or, you know, they're usually really reflective questions. How satisfied do you feel with what you've achieved this week? What are you going to change next week? Um, and then refer to some of the things they did and get them to explore it a bit more deeply. Are there um, any other schools in Japan that have this position? Because uh, yeah. you can, because yeah. I'm assuming at your school, you know, if people look for a job title, there's the, the ELI jobs and there's the mm. language learning advisor jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to apply separately. That's it. Yeah, they're completely yeah different jobs. And so, yeah. so we tend to not teach classes. We might have one class on self-directed learning. Okay. Yeah. And and how how do you decide if someone is qualified to be a language learning advisor? If you're looking to hire someone. Yeah, well, I make the job description and the job ad as clear as possible. So hopefully people self-select. They can imagine themselves doing that role. That's part of it. Um, but usually I, I'm interested in people who are interested in working one-to-one -one with students um, outside of the classroom rather than, you know, following curriculum. So it tends to attract different kinds of people, I suppose. It's not for everyone. Um, and I, then usually a background in learner autonomy I and, see. Uh, or psychology and, of course, applied linguistics or TESOL as well. Because, and we'll get into the book here in a sec. Maybe last question. So do you also offer a, like a training program? that people outside of the university can take? Yeah, we do. We have a, we run a certificate in advising. Yeah. So it's a, a course that we offer as part of the research Institute and our graduate school. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah. all right. Well, thank you for, thank you for talking about that. Cause again, I've read these papers and I just, because it's, to me, it sounds like such a unique environment. It was really hard for me to imagine how it all works. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to it, I suppose. Okay, so the book that we're speaking about today is Autonomy Support Beyond the Language Learning Classroom, A Self-Determination Theory Perspective. As I was reading the book, mm -hmm. I saw that maybe some seeds were planted during PLL3, I guess for people that don't know, Psychology of Language Learning Conference, which we've talked about on previous episodes. So mm -hmm. I guess PLL3 
was in Tokyo. Right. And I think in the episode with Stephen Ryan, he was talking. Actually, it was funny, funny story. In the episode with Stephen Ryan, he was saying he's really into windsurfing now. Yeah. And the impetus for windsurfing was he got so burned out from organizing PLL3. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? He said, I was working so hard every day at my computer for PLL3, and then PLL3 was over, and I was still going to my computer, and I was saying, why am I doing this? I need to yeah. get outside. But anyway, so it sounds like some of the, the, the ideas for this book stemmed from that conference. It did, yeah. I mean, the field of self-access, you know, I, I work mainly with learners outside the classroom. Mm -hmm. So the field of self-access is about, it's, it, you know, it started in the late 1960s, early 70s. So it's been around for a while. Um, and it's gone through several iterations, you know, based on things like communicative language uh, learning and computer-assisted language learning and so on. Mm. Um, and recently, I suppose we've been seeing the more importance of the social side and also the role of psychology. Mm. And so listening to Richard Ryan's plenary, uh, everything just sort of shifted for me, just listening. I mean, he's an amazing speaker. And, you know, as I mentioned, back in Dublin, I was reading DC and Ryan's seminal work, you know, from the 80s and so on. Mm. And just to see him present it. And I, it was just an epiphany, really. And it wasn't just me. It was all, all we were all there. All of all of the learning advisors um, were there. And um, we met the following week. And all of us, it was sort of a shift. It was like, wow, we need to be drawing on this more robustly. Um, and we all agreed with this, you know, with, look at the, the three basic psychological needs. You know, how can we ensure that our our self-access centre um, supports these, you know, relatedness, autonomy and competence? How do we know? You know, how do we know that we're creating these conditions for learners to thrive and grow? And we're interested in well-being. And it just made a lot of sense for us. And so we talked about it for ages. And I think back then, uh, the seeds of a book, you know, were growing. Mm. And then the following year, there was the uh, Self-Determination Theory Conference in Holland. And a few of us went to that. And again, it was amazing. And this wasn't a language conference at all. It was thousands, of, <laughs> thousands and thousands of people from all over the world, all talking about self-determination theory in different fields. Wow. And once again, Richard Ryan was there and um, Ed DC as well. And some of the other leaders, you know, Kim Knowles was there and just so many um, people that whose articles I've been reading for years, you know, it was an amazing event. So during that time, I think myself and my colleagues um, decided we would do a book because there really wasn't anything um, on, not really much on language learning, actually. I think Kim Knowles is um, leading the field there, definitely, but nothing on language support beyond the classroom which is, I think, what we were specifically focused on. Yeah, if people would like to listen to Kim Knowles, she was on a previous episode, episode 83, and also someone that you cite quite a lot in the book, uh, Benson, mm. Phil Benson, right? Mm. Um, he was on episode 62. And in the episode with Phil Benson, he was talking a lot about a recent study he did where he was tracking this student outside of the classroom, mm. um, which I really kind of thought a lot about I was reading through this book mm. and we I was thinking a lot about you know you write you write about in the book you know the challenges why you know so much it's sort of an under-researched field mm. you know autonomy outside of the classroom you know there's all these logistical things right you have more control over the students yeah um quality control maybe there's safety issues and yeah. I guess Phil Benson had you know he he developed this app and he had her check in and and mm. every day make make a log 
and it was a really exciting study, but you can see why, you know, these studies are a little bit more difficult to do. Yeah. Um, but it is exciting. And I think you even made the argument in the book that maybe more learning development happens outside of the classroom. You know, we don't yeah, know really, right? I think so. I mean, it's hard because, you know, it's pretty intrusive um, to track someone. You know, of course, you can do it for a study like Filder has done, but uh, it's intru- you can't track hundreds of learners like that. You are relying on self-reports and uh, reflective journals and things like that. But you do see a lot of evidence. People, maybe they learn something in class, but it doesn't make sense for them until they start using it outside of the classroom. So, yeah. It's just harder to pin down, as you said. So in this book, you wrote the introduction mm-hmm. with your co-author. Your co-author is Scott J. Shelton Strong. Is that mm-hmm. someone that you work with in Akanda? Yeah, so he's a learning advisor, Akanda as well. And he was at the, both at the, um, yeah, I think we probably all, we're all sitting together at um, Richard Ryan's talk at PLL3. And then a few of us, including myself and Scott, went to the Self-Determination Theory Conference. So we were talking about this a lot. And Scott writes really well. Um, we work together uh, well and write together well. So we it seemed like a natural person to help with the editing. So we decided we would edit it. Um, and then we had some authors in mind as well. So... We, we also should mention that you're part of the International International Association for the, the Psychology of Language mm-hmm. Learning. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, mm-hmm. IAPL. IAPL. We've had a few other uh, notable members of that organization. Mm. So, and again, this is within that umbrella in so, somewhat, right? Because it's part of the Psychology of Language, Learn, language Learning and Teaching series. Mm. Yeah. Um, so for people that are interested in all of that, uh, stuff, you should visit iapple.com. And I think you're on the, the board of that organization, right? Yeah, that's right. And you, I think I was reading your bio. Are you the one that sort of helped organize the journal? Yeah. So it was myself um, and Sarah Mercer and um, Imelda Brady. So all of us are, are um, editors in chief, I guess, but the three of us took the lead in establishing the first two issues and editing the first two issues, and then we handed it over to um, Phil Hiver and Ali Al-Hori to do the next two. And so we'll re- rotate it, but I'm still on the um, advisory board and review board for that. That's cool. Um, all right, so you you wrote the introduction with Scott uh, Shelton Strong, and then mm-hmm. you also wrote Chapter 12, yeah. Reimagining the Self-Access Center as a Place to Thrive. I don't want to spend, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, because I'd like people to go out and read the book. But I guess I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Which direction would you, we can like finish off the interview. Would you like to sort of spend some time talking about chapter 12 or just some of your favorite parts throughout the yeah. book that you didn't like, write? Yeah, I suppose in the introduction as well, you know, after, you know, talking with colleagues and we'd been to a couple of conferences, I put together a draft proposal for the book and I shared it with Scott and he added some things. And we realized one of the puzzles we wanted to get into was that, um, like I'd been involved with, uh, Ayatefel's learner autonomy special interest group for many years. So, mm. you know, learner autonomy was my background through my master's and everything, um, my doctorate as well. And I, I, I was trying to figure out where the fields intersect, overlap, inform each other. I'm still not quite sure, but we thought the book would at least help people sort out, you know, what is learner autonomy from the language learning perspective mm. and what is autonomy from a self-determination theory or psychology perspective. And we, we've talked about, you know, we talk, had many, many, many conversations and papers where we discussed this, but we, ha- we 
basically we, they're coming from a different direction. And we wanted to, through this book, show how one could inform the other. Because the language learner autonomy field is very good on the practical applications, especially for language uh, teachers and learners. Um, but there's not much, not much research, really, not what you'd call robust, you know, uh, replicable studies and that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas you've got plenty of those in psychology and self-determination theory, but the applications to practice, particularly outside the classroom, is really missing. So we were able to draw on these two fields. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to mention was I hope we were able to do that through the book. And then chapter 12, um, I actually, I, I wasn't going to write. Originally, I, I wasn't planning to write a chapter. Um, but then when we were reviewing, when all the chapters came in, we realized there was a gap. You know, we didn't have anything on self-access. Mm. And so I, I'm, I was asking Scott, oh, who should we get to write it? And he said, well, you, obviously. <laughs> so I think he just, I didn't really consider, you know, I didn't, I thought it'd be quite nice to get someone else's voice, but um, he talked me into it. And so, um, yeah, I decided to write it and thoroughly enjoyed writing it because it gave me a chance to really unpack what self-determination theory meant to me and our practice at Kuis, and in, hopefully it could be useful for other self-access centres as well. So, yeah, that was quite funny that I hadn't considered writing it until Scott kind of mentioned it. I thought it was uh, really well written. And this is like a compliment to you, you. and also possibly the editors. Um, I think I, I gave the same compliment to Stephen Ryan when I read his book that he wrote with Dornier in 2015, mm. we were going through all of these topics, right? I mean, yeah, it's great autonomy. Book, isn't it? Well, yeah. even for yourself, right? Autonomy, competence, relatedness, curiosity, yeah. intrinsic goals, interest. And I think the compliment I gave Stephen Ryan was kind of like the the windsurfing analogy. It mm. didn't like you. You have to take the readers through all of these topics, right? And and he did a good job of sort of skipping mm. over the water and. You did as well. So you, you, you're you introducing these topics and you're telling us how it applies to us, but we didn't get bogged down too much, mm. um, where sometimes academic writing can just get really tiring mm. uh, when you're reading through it, right? Um, right, yeah. So the biggest compliment I can give anyone is is uh, your your chapter did not make me tired. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> I suppose I, I was thinking of, you know, what did it mean to my learners and our team? And mm. so, yeah, that, they were always at the forefront when I was writing it. Um, and I also, I asked John Marshall Reeve to read it. And I, of course, Scott read it as well. And I took their feedback on board and that was pretty useful. So uh, John Marshall Reeve was very generous with his time and I really admire his work. And so getting his feedback was just so crucial for me. I liked how you, you sort of frame the perspective of the um, the overbearing teacher on one end, right? Mm. And then the ultra-free teacher on the other. Yeah, well, that's John Marshall Reeve's work. I mean, he if you read um, some of his other work where he talks about the classroom. I've just read a, I've just written another chapter, actually, where I, I go into that in more detail because I think it's really useful to look at what does it mean to be a controlling teacher in a controlling learning environment mm. and what's the equivalent in a SALC as well and how can we be more autonomy supportive. So, yeah, that was basically taken from John Marshall's work. Yeah, it's tough because I kind of I can't remember if it was his chapter or your chapter where you're talking about, you know, these idea of structures or freedom within structures and mm. how do we fine tune this? So I, I guess there's a lot of research to be done yet, right? In mm. this field. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I, I in my chapter I kind of lay out a model that draws on basic psychological needs, but also 
what John Master Reeve terms actually, and I've borrowed this from him, inner motivational resources. So that's the curiosity, intrinsic goals and interest, um, which seem to make sense. So all of these things should be present in a salk. Mm. Yeah, in order to increase intrinsic motivation and um, to result in positive language learning outcomes for students. Well, this is amazing. I, as I'm reading this chapter and talking to you, it just sounds like a different world. I, I kind of want to visit this campus now. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah. A thousand people. <laughs> yeah, please come. So, I mean, we wanted to see, it's all very well talking about a place where learners can thrive, but do they really? And this is still something we're working on. But um, a, a large team of researchers uh, did, looked at it. So we were interviewing students using the SALC. Um, to see why they came, what they made of it, and all this kind of stuff. So we need to do more follow-ups on that. But basically, we found that the, the SALC is fairly autonomy-supportive in many ways because it was built that way. Um, but there's still a lot to do, you know. It's never-ending, really. So we want to help students feel a sense of confidence and competence when they're using the language, and that's not always easy for them. There's a lot of barriers to expressing themselves, so that's something we're working on next year. And, yeah, uh, and to I, feel a sense of relatedness, I feel like part of the community. So that's always something we're working on. Yeah, yeah, I really like the theme of this book. How you know, outside the classroom or beyond the classroom. Um, I kind of think it. I think you talked about it in the book as well. But I was thinking even before I read the book, this idea of like a language learning environment. Mm, so what's yeah. the difference? Uh, you know, I guess we're talking about assessments, right? So when you're mm. in the school, we always have this assessment thing over our head or the curriculum, right? Mm. Um, but the same psychological things could happen, you know, for me when I'm in the post office mm-hmm. or I'm at the bank yeah, um, or I'm in my karate class, right? Mm. And it does seem like this unexplored research field mm. and but with a lot of challenges, like, you know, as, as we said before. Yeah. Um, but it is, so I suppose what yeah, yeah what we hope to do in the SALC and through our advising is to help students understand the challenges that they're going to face um, and to you know overcome them themselves, make plans to overcome them. So if going to the post office is stressful using another language, you know what is it what is it that's causing you stress and and plan something. You know do you, should you do a practice? Do you need to um, you know, research some words you need? Do a role play with a friend before you go. Um, or whatever, what is it you need to do to feel more confident? And don't put yourself down so much. You manage to buy the stamp or post your letter or whatever it is. You, you know, there was a successful outcome. So don't feel so hard hard on yourself if you didn't manage to use perfect grammar. You know that kind of thing. So um, that's just a small example. But students struggle with all sorts of things, and uh, helping them take charge of the learning, I think, empowers them and develops their confidence. Wow. Uh, amazing. All right. So the name of the book is Autonomy Support Beyond the Language Learning Classroom, A Self-Determination Theory Perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess last thing I just should mention also that you have your own publishing company. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, Candlin and, and Minard e-publishing. Yes. Right. Uh, how do you have time in the day for all this stuff? <laughs> That's kind of like a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Chris Candlin used to be the advisor at Candy University. So we hit it off. He's also originally from Wales. So we had a lot to talk about. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> we always wanted to encourage our colleagues to, you know, ex- express themselves, to write, to research, to publish. And um, at the time, I think, pub- you know, to be a novice uh, public- novice writer 
it's actually quite hard. It's really hard to get published if you've never done it before. Um, and we could see great potential from some of our colleagues. And so this is kind of where this came about, you know, between writing it and getting published, you know, could be years, decades sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to be an alternative to support authors um, help them reach their potential and to produce books that were accessible and not too expensive and you know could be in every library and these kinds of things so yeah Chris and I always had this dream to do it and uh, and so yeah it's um it's been fun so it's nice I get to work and support people who have really interesting ideas and people have uh yeah I, I hopefully have enjoyed the experience of publishing with us um, well, good luck with all of your endeavors. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Dr. Joe Miner, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Hey, thank you so much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.